Hi, it's the 14th of September, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, the long arm of gout. What happens when things go wrong? What about headaches for lupus mavens? They're ahead. And which would you prefer to be managed by an internal medicine resident or physician assistant if you're in the ICU? At the top of the news, we have a study of uh, pregnancy in psoriatic arthritis. This comes from Norway, and it looked at 108 pregnancies in 103 women with psoriatic arthritis and found out that the vast majority, 75%, either were in remission or low disease activity state during the pregnancy and for the immediate period thereafter. It was generally after six months that the flares were noted, and that seemed to be universal, and that is obviously what happens in all patients with arthritis. Usually by six months, they're going off of stopping breastfeeding, and they're going on to therapy, and, and they used to have to go on therapy because they are flaring. But this is an interesting study because we don't know a lot about psoriatic arthritis and what happens in pregnancy. The same can be said for psoriasis and maybe even enclosing spondylitis. We do know a lot about lupus and RA in pregnancy. So this is important data that might help you. And some of these patients, minority, continued their, their therapies throughout the pregnancy. Most did not. So again, I think this is encouraging data for your patients who have psoriatic arthritis and may want to get pregnant in the future. An interesting study comes uh, and looks at early arthritis patients who were either randomized to receive methotrexate or methotrexate plus Plaquenil. 325 patients who were treatment and methotrexate naive were randomized to receive either monotherapy or combination. And of course you would say that the combination therapy was better. And it was significantly better at six months, but it wasn't significantly better at 12 months suggesting that maybe it really doesn't, you don't really need to be that, that aggressive. I think that, you know, this data, you look at it, you probably say, well, gee, I should probably put everybody on Plaquenil and methotrexate at the same time. It's a safe drug and whatnot. But I don't know that, the, that, this, that it's worth the extra pills for the patient uh, and the extra concern for the patient. While, again, the ULAR good responses and DAS CRP values were less at six months, they're not much different at 12 months, suggesting you're probably doing the right thing if you start your earlier arthritis patients on just methotrexate. An observational study looked at the associations of hyperuricemia, uh, and there's a large population, young adults, 18 to 35 years of age, and it was shown that hyperuricemia was strongly associated with the development of coronary artery disease. What was interesting about this was it was accentuated with smokers, but it was also present with non-smokers. In fact, it was almost a two-fold increased risk of coronary artery disease in, in individuals, young individuals who had hyperuricemia. I think this is important because there is this ongoing debate about whether hyperuricemia alone is a risk factor for vascular disease, renal disease, hypertension. And if you believe that, then maybe you would be more inclined to treat asymptomatic hyperuricemia. I must say I've changed my mind over the years. I'm worried about hyperuricemia, uh, especially if it's greater than 10. You know, if it's borderline, I'm probably not going to treat hyper, uh, asymptomatic hyperuricemia. And there's a lot of experts who wouldn't agree with me on this, but I think there's a, an accumulating a, a body of evidence that says that hyperuricemia is a very bad risk factor in vascular disease. An interesting study looked at 581 gout patients and compared them to osteoarthritis patients and looked at their 10-year outcomes as far as cancers, and they, what they found was gout patients had a lower risk of colorectal cancer. It was 0.8% versus 3.7%, almost a four-fold higher rate in patients with osteoarthritis compared to age-matched 
gout patients. Now, this, is this important or not? I, I think you should know that most studies have concluded that there is an increased risk of m multiple cancers in patients with gout overall. This data says it's reduced in color, with the least regard to colorectal cancer, and that may well be due to intermittent use of non-steroidal drugs. But I think it's good news for patients who have gout. A strange study looked at the association between gout and hearing loss. Um, they took the Medicare database from 2006 to 2012, used a 5% sample, and looked at the incidence of hearing impairment in people who had gout versus those who didn't. Amongst those who did not have gout, the risk of, of, of new hearing loss was 8.7 per 1,000 patients. It was almost double that if you had gout, 6.9. The hazard ratio after corrections was 1.44, and again, that was significant. Why would there be an association between hearing loss and gout? Maybe that's the reason why they don't follow our advice. They just didn't hear us. So you have a gout patient, I told you to take the allopurinol. So is it that? Or could it be again that hyperuricemia leads to microvascular disease? It turns out that vascular disease is often an etiologic factor in many cases of hearing loss. Again, this study is not well explained, as I'm going to go into later when I talk, when I talk about depression and, and lupus, but I think it's interesting data, and it will, will lead me to look for gout, in, um, not gout, but hearing loss in my patients, and maybe to ask them about their hearing, especially before I give them what I think is crucial therapeutic advice for the future. There's a, a small study, but nonetheless a single center study that looked at 10 patients who developed autoimmune diseases, autoimmune uh, immune-related uh, adverse events associated with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, you know, the PDL1 inhibitors, etc. In their 10 patients, they had oligoarthritis, polyarthritis, tenosynovitis. Half of them were ANA positive. A bunch of them had CRPs. Uh, the things they wanted to take from this is that the onset was about six months after the onset of therapy for their cancer. All of them required steroids. Some of them required high-dose steroids. And that the mean time to resolution was really quite long. 9.2 months was the average mean time to resolution. This is a, a low-frequency event that we in rheumatology are seeing more and more of. And these people do represent a significant therapeutic challenge. We've covered this in multiple times, multiple uh, reports in the past. Usually if you have such a patient, just do the, the search on uh, roomnow.com for either IRAEs, immune-related adverse events, or checkpoint inhibitors, and you'll see a compilation of multiple reports that really describes the syndrome. Some very disappointing data comes out uh, this last week about from AstraZeneca and Metamune, who, ha as you know, have been developing the uh, type 1 uh, alpha interferon uh, inhibitor, uh, anaphrolamab. As you know, two years ago, they made a big splash at ULAR, presenting the data. It looked really, really good. 34% SRI4 responses on anaphrolamab versus 17% highly significant. That was a phase two trial. Now they have two large phase three trials called TULIP-1 and TULIP-2. TULIP-2 uh, is in progress. TULIP-1 has been wrapped up and they gave a preliminary report. Now the sad part is I'm not going to tell you the values. I am going to tell you that this was a study of I think 200 and 460 patients who were randomized to receive placebo or two different doses of anaphrolamab, 150 or 300 milligrams, 
every four weeks. The primary endpoint was the SRI4 at 12 months. They did not achieve their primary endpoint, suggesting it does obviously doesn't work. They also provide no further data and tell you it's going to be released at an upcoming medical meeting. I assume that means ACR 2018 in Chicago. So look for that data at the ACR meeting uh, about anaphrolimab and not meeting its primary endpoint in patients with lupus. Again, might be interesting to note whether that was only seen in people who had um, a signal for anaphrolimab. As you know, not all lupus patients have the same biology. That was shown quite nicely by Virginia Pasquale, who suggested there might be five different types of lupus, one of which has a high, uh, an high signal for interferon or is an interferon-driven disease. An interesting study comes from um, the uh, Karolinska Institute where they do very good uh, research in Sweden. In this study, they looked at the role of diet in the onset of patients who have who get rheumatoid arthritis. Specifically, they looked at um, 1,700 cases of incident RA and compared that to age-matched controls two to one, so basically 3,600 non-RA controls. Um, and what they found was that the risk of developing RA was highly associated uh, with those who were consuming a Mediterranean diet. Now, in their studies, they actually have um, a, uh, a dietary questionnaire, 125 different um, questions or so, and they could actually develop what was called um, um, a Mediterranean score, if you will. And those who actually had a high Mediterranean diet were much more likely to um, uh, not get rheumatoid arthritis. This mainly was seen, or only was seen in men and not women. The overall reduction for the whole population, the whole study, was about 21%, I think. The odds ratio is 0 0.79. Um, this, these results, however, only applied to men where there was a 50% reduction in men and also those who are seropositive for either rheumatoid factor or ACPA, where there was a, over a 30% reduction uh, in those individuals, again, who were men or seropositive who are on a high Mediterranean diet. So very interesting, and maybe that's important for patients who are at risk, patients who have you know, a strong family history of RA, patients who may be seropositive but have no symptoms. Maybe it's something that we should be advising because we really don't know what to do with them therapeutically. Uh, we're waiting on those studies to be done. Another quizzical study comes uh, from the Nurses' Health Study that shows a significant association between depression and the onset of lupus. As you know, the Nurses' Health Study has come up with a lot of good data. They've come up with a lot of goofy data. Again, almost 200,000 200, women, 194,000 women followed for almost 20 years in two different studies. Um, and in that time frame, they actually had 145 new cases of lupus. Turns out that women who had depression, depression was proven three different ways. A clinical diagnosis given by a doctor, the um, consume, consuming an antidepressant, and they had a score that was in, that's included in their questionnaire that was highly associated with uh, depression. Either or all of those scores were associated with a two-fold increased risk of lupus. Overall, the hazard ratio was 2.67. That was significant. Turns out that no matter how you sliced and diced this into different subgroups, it was over a two-fold increased risk. Again, unchanged by body mass index, smoking, uh, contraception, uh, whether you're postmenopausal, uh, whether you're on hormones, etc. I don't know how to explain that. Um, why would depression patients 
be getting lupus. Is that something that you see? I don't think I really see it. We know that depression is part of neuropsychiatric lupus. Um, we know that there is some literature about uh, immune abnormalities seen in patients with new onset depression. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've certainly noticed this as ones who often is looking for new onset disease, RA and lupus. You find a lot of new onset positive serologies coming from the psychiatric clinic in patients who have depression. So there could be something to this, um, but I think what you really need to take from this is that, that this is not proof that such observational studies really are hypothesis generating and need to be proven in a randomized trial that would be an intervention trial. Take depression patients, follow them prospectively, see what happens, make an intervention regarding depression, see if it changes the risk of lupus. Obviously very hard to do and maybe is all we're left with. But again, women in the nurses health study are not truly representative of other women. They tend to be younger, more white, thinner, more access to healthcare, better diets, you know, better health practices, etc. So again, it's hard to say what this kind of data means, but it is nonetheless interesting. Uh, New England Journal this week had a very important paper about um, BMS, Bristol-Myers Squibb, new product. It's a TIC2 inhibitor. It's called BMS 986165. They haven't yet purchased the name, I guess. Uh, and this is a 12-week trial of a TIC2 inhibitor. TIC2 is part of the Janus kinase family. If you're talking about JAX, there's usually a discussion of JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and TIC2, the tyrosine kinase that is involved in transmembrane signaling, the generation of cytokines, especially IL-6, IL-10, IL-12, to name a few. Um, this is being developed in a number of different disorders, lupus, maybe inflammatory arthritis, in this case, um, patients with psoriasis. A 12-week study that looked at multiple doses versus placebo in 267 patients with plaque psoriasis um, who were moderate to severe, and they found really impressive results. Placebo response rate for a posse 75 response was 7% on placebo, but if you were taking 6 to 12 milligrams per day of the TIC2 inhibitor, they saw posse 75 rates of 67 to 75%. No, no impressive safety signals um, that would distinguish it from anything else being studied in psoriasis. Is this meaningful? I think it's too early to tell how it's going to stack up against TNF inhibitors, uh, other JAK inhibitors, uh, as you know, tofacitinib was approved um, uh, for psoriatic arthritis, not for psoriasis. Um, uh, and certainly the IL-17, IL-23, IL-1223. This is one study, 267 patients. We need more studies. But this is good news because um, uh, I think we're going to see this kind of therapy in rheumatology, and it's not just going to be limited to uh, only uh, those who have um, psoriasis. Um, let's just say, um, and the, this report by, um, with a quote that I put on Twitter this week, it's sort of a follow-up to all the tweets I did last week coming from my white coat ceremony speech, sort of inspirational things about patient care. And this week's quote was, uh, it comes from me, um, providing medical care is more of a commitment to the patient than a commitment to science. Empathy, understanding, and listening are incredibly hard when you think you have all the answers. That's it for this week at RoomNow.com. Go to the website to read up about these reports. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.